Welcome to Sit Down Startup Podcast. On this show, we bring inspiring stories from leaders building startups from all over the world. Every week, our guests share their journey and how their customers played a crucial role in it. How are you liking our podcast so far? Give your feedback and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Sit Down Startup. We have a very special episode for you all today, and you don't want to miss a minute of it. I'm super excited to have Alexis Ohenia on our show. He's best known for founding the social media platform Reddit. After selling it to Condé Nast, Alexis continued his journey to empower other founders by becoming an investor himself. Alexis founded Initialized Capital, a seed stage venture firm based in Silicon Valley, most known for investing in Coinbase, Instacart, and Opendoor. Currently, Alexis is the founder at 776, a venture fund focused on people, culture, and community. To have a coffee with Alexis, we invited Kristen Durham, VP of Startups at Zendesk. Are you ready? Let's sit down and start up. Really excited to be joining you, Alexis, uh, for this conversation today. Uh, before we all went remote, actually, one of the last community events uh, Zendesk hosted in San Francisco was with Kat Mignolik of Y Combinator, who I think you know pretty well, right? Long time ago, she was my chief of staff, and uh, before joining Y Combinator uh, as a partner, and I've, gosh, I, I adore her. She's a new mom. Um, and, uh, she's a fantastic person and all of her success career wise, I, uh, take credit for, so I try to take as much credit as possible for all. I've had a number of chief of staffs over the last decade, um, transition and, and it's a good, it, it actually makes me so proud and so happy to see that. And she's, she's fantastic. And yes, yeah, so she's a partner now. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there's some like good fortune in this where like the two of you will bookend uh, our time in quarantine. Right. So that, that this interview maybe is, is kind of a step towards normality. Um, and let's say imagining we were in normal times, uh, what kind of coffee could I get you if we're sitting down in a cafe? No, I'm glad you asked because I have uh, not only a full cup, but a full mug of Waffle House uh, which is really, hopefully that's in focus. I mean, this is, it's not, look, this is not the. Oh, the almost. There, there we go. Beautiful. Coffee. But it is in its own way uh, life-changing uh, because you see, I was going to be an immigration lawyer. Uh, I was at UVA studying history, getting ready for the LSAT. And I I don't know. I just figured the rest of my life was figured out. I'm going to do immigration law. First things first, take the LSAT. And I was sitting in the LSAT and 30 minutes into it, Saturday morning, I got hungry and I left and I went to a waffle house and I was sitting there drinking my coffee, eating my waffle. And I realized I must really not want to be a lawyer because I just picked waffle. <laughs> over the LSAT. And like, I need the LSAT to become a lawyer. So I probably shouldn't have chosen waffles, but I did. Cause that's, I don't, I, I just, some part of me knew in my gut, I was not cut out. I, I just wasn't meant to do the law. And, uh, I drank my waffle house coffee. I went home and then proceeded to convince my 
uh, roommate to start a company with me. And he had a job all lined up and I convinced him to quit. His mom was not very happy with me at the time. She got over it and uh, ended up, you know, starting on this career. So I'm grateful, very grateful for the Waffle House and their coffee. Beautiful. Well, I'm glad it's uh, I'm glad it's still with you today. And we'll we'll make that we'll make that first appointment in Waffle House, uh, which is which is good. I'm assuming it's it's straight up black. No alterations then. huh? Like my soul. I mean, I, <laughs> I love a pour over. Kat knows this, too. I mean, we're both pretty snobby with our coffee. We just we like a good cup of coffee. And um, I don't know, I found over the years, many different techniques. I'm in pour over phase right now. I was doing French press for a while, but I, my wife rolls her eyes every time I start my day. Cause she's happy. She could take it like a, a one of the Keurig ones, like things that like burn my soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just can't. Uh, but I do, I do love a good cup of waffle house coffee. Yeah. Change your life. Just saying it could, that's a place where epiphanies happen. Well, I, uh, I, I I have I, I don't have uh, a Waffle House story. My my mug today is is a uh, is a Hawaii mug, uh, which is uh, filled with coffee. It's it's where I've had a chance to spend a couple months uh, while while we've been locked up. Uh, had some uh, in Kauai. Kauai is my favorite one. I mean, yeah. I, it's like the only one that I that I know, but it's my favorite. Uh, <laughs> it's chill. Yeah. And, and I, I spent a week there. This was a minute ago now. This is right after his 2013 right after the book tour. And I took my buddies and I mean, it was a week of nothing but, uh, <laughs> great food, weed and chickens. Cause there are chickens everywhere just running around and it's just there so are. beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a special Island. That's so great. Well, what a, what a delightful place to be. Yeah, I, I I took the inspiration from some uh, from some Aussie founders I knew who used to always talk about their board meetings as as their surfboard meetings, right? So uh, so we made the uh, we made the the jump. Uh, chickens, weed, coffee, all still here. Uh, it's great. The thing that I discovered coming to Kauai, kind of one of the uh, one of the better known folks from the island is a guy named Laird Hamilton, and. Uh, amazing amazing guy uh super innovative when it comes to the world of surfing uh and he has something called layered superfood so that is that is the other thing when i drink my coffee in hawaii i drink it now with layered superfood creamer in it Um, oh he's a legit surfer wow yeah legit yeah i don't i've never surfed i don't know anything about it clearly Man. Okay. All right. So uh, this is the next time we do one of these interviews, it'll be on some surfboards. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, okay. So uh, I'll, I'll say as I was preparing for today, uh, I had to edit myself a lot. There are so many interesting things about your background. Uh that I didn't know of, uh, like, you know, Waffle House, uh, but also uh, that that maybe I do of, of your accomplishments, the things that you're building now as an entrepreneur, advisor, husband, dad, investor, um, that I know we can't cover everything, but I do want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about some evergreen topics, like what it takes to found and build, uh, you know, great customer-focused companies, uh, and then also some areas getting renewed attention, like building a community. So if you're if you're up for it, let's let's dive in. Let's go. 
I'm into so, it. Love, um, I love popular well, community he's gotten now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll skip the the CV part of it, but you know, I, I'd say that many folks will know you best from founding Reddit. Uh, I'd love to start off by hearing from you about you know who or what was the biggest inspiration for you to become an entrepreneur. Uh, obviously, law school was not going to be the thing for you, but uh, I'm sure there was something more to it than just uh, not wanting to take the LSAT. Um. No, that really had a lot to do with it. <laughs> I just realized I was working towards something that I'd have to spend three years and a lot of money that I didn't have on to get a degree to then maybe do a thing I wanted to do. And I just didn't like the risk reward profile of that. And, and what I did see growing up, uh, my father has been, still is an entrepreneur, uh, but like lowercase e entrepreneur, he has a, a small travel agency in Western Maryland. And in spite of everything happening, thanks to software, including his own son launching a competitive travel search website called Hipmunk in like yeah. 2011, 2010, um, he's still endured and he, he outlasted Hipmunk. My dad got the last laugh. <laughs> <laughs> he's right. Um, he's been doing travel for like 30, 35 years, started his own agency when I was in high school. And you know, a couple employees, very simple setup out there in, in Western Maryland and um, endured through all of these, you know, tech revolutions and still has a good business to this day. Um, probably be retiring from it at some point uh, here in the next year or two, but um, he loves it. And, and I think that showed, it demystified entrepreneurship for me um, mm -hmm. because what I saw as a high school kid was, hey, my dad's trying this thing. He doesn't have a business degree. He barely had a college degree. And he was just like, you know what? I think I know this business well enough. I've got some clients. I can go put out my own shingle and build something out of it. And so that absolutely demystified it and in a way de-risked it because I realized, you know, I was sitting there eating my waffle and I'm like, okay, like I think I can sell things. I think I can build things. I had no idea what it meant to be a CEO back then, of course. But in my head, I was like, I can do this. And, and I built enough websites. I ran a forum in college that I'd started called eyeswide.org. It was just a PHP BB forum uh, where I had maybe like a thousand community members who would all come on to talk about politics or the news of the day or philosophy. And, uh, and I did it because it, it felt like, I don't know, it felt kind of cool to have a community. It felt, it felt kind of empowering to have a place where people felt like they could talk about the things that matter to them. And I don't know. I didn't think much else of it, mm -hmm. but all of that was actually sowing the seeds of confidence and, and whatnot for you know, what would become Reddit. And so I think all of those things helped inspire me in a way. Um, you know, we applied to Y Combinator. I didn't really, I didn't know who Paul Graham was. Um, I had read a couple of his essays, but uh, you know, the inspiration really came from seeing my dad do it. And and then just, I don't know, feeling like the worst thing that could happen was I would go get a job. You know, I was lucky to graduate college without any student loan debt. Um, I had probably maybe 10 grand in the bank because I worked throughout high school and college. So like, I felt like I'm in a great, great place. Like I, I can take this risk and worst case scenario, fall flat on my face in two years and get a job and have a good story and carry on. So I, um, I think I was fortunate in a lot of ways to even have the, the freedom to think about all that stuff, but that's, that's it. It wasn't like, 
I didn't grow up reading biographies of Steve Jobs. Um, I didn't idolize too many people, uh, which I think is a good thing. And I try to tell founders to do the same. I tell them not even like if they, if they're deluded enough to say that they uh, look up to me, I tell them to, to, to not Um, just because I think, I think there are, I think it's important to find attributes and things from people that you can learn from and sort of role model, uh, sort of to help sort of remix for yourself. But, um, but I really don't think, I don't think anyone who's going to end up doing something truly transformative should be trying too hard to be like someone because you're not really pushing things forward. You're, you're, you're just, it's like a copy paste versus let me be motivated. And then, and then also accept the fact that every one of these people is going to have things that you should look more critically at and try to be better than myself included. And so like, I mean, I was surrounded, especially in the early days of Y Combinator, surrounded by people who, who very much worshiped Paul Graham, who very much worshiped folks like Steve Jobs. And, you know, there are lots of good attributes in these folks. and There's lots of not good attributes in everyone, again, myself included. And I think where we stray with the culture of hero worship we have, <clears throat> whether it's around entrepreneurs or anyone, is um, you're just almost bound to get disappointed. And, and more importantly, I think it doesn't let you push hard enough to say, okay, what are the things that I really respect? What are the things that I don't respect about this person? And how can I try to find ways to be better myself? Yeah. And, uh, well, so there's my, <laughs> there's my, I, you know, I would say for me too, part of it is that oftentimes the, the stories that we hear of other founders, successful founders are the beautiful versions of the stories. They're the retrospectives and not sort of necessarily based in what the uh, reality was of the time, the, the bad decisions that were made, the, you know, maybe totally wrong perspective on what was the thing that was actually being built um, in, in those early days. Um, I don't know if you'll indulge me, like, you know, when you got started, what, what, you know, was the thing that you were building, uh, the thing that folks, you know, that you're building at the time, like, would people still recognize Reddit as that today? Was there like, you know, did you, did you kind of know this user and the platform you were building for them? Or was it, um, was it a little bit more incremental in the way that you, you worked your way towards, um, kind of what that company became? Uh, given, given the way the product didn't evolve for 10 years. Yeah. Actually, I think people would recognize it. (laughs) Uh, I would not recommend anyone follow that path. Look, the, if I think back to my humble forum in college, good old eyeswide.org, the part that really resonated with me was that there were, you know, maybe a thousand strangers who I didn't know, who didn't know me, who didn't know each other, who all communicated via, you know, an anonymous or sort of, a, fake, a username, not their government names, but they had a sense of community and inside jokes and they kept coming back and they, <clears throat> they had a sense of camaraderie. And if you look at the, like the early days of the internet with message boards, using it, all this stuff, like this is this kind of communing by username at the heart of these days of the internet and, and at its best really allows people to connect in an authentic way that, we can't do oftentimes face to face or on social networks where we are our, you know, first name, last name, you know, and we're out trying to collect the most likes. 
Um, and so there was something there that was interesting to me that I think has been a thread that's carried throughout. And it's, I think, a part of the reason why we're seeing not just the success today, um, but this, I mean, the, the success really for the last 15 years of online communities overall, because now that we have a critical mass of people on the internet who understand natively the value of it and are much more willing and much more open to just, you know, get, get parenting advice from a stranger on a forum. Uh, how many of us, right, myself included, do that? We don't even think about it, right? That's just, of course, how else would we find out the information? And, and that's a massive cultural shift. That didn't, that did, we take it for granted, that didn't exist in 2005. For the typical person, that was a radical idea. And so that's the thread that I think, that's really the only thread that I can kind of consider even back when I was just in college that I was thinking about that still holds up to this day. And, and it really is just an echo of the original internet, which is just an echo of sort of how we already organize ourselves as people and as little clans and communities and tribes. It's, it's, <clears throat> you know, it's some of that stuff that I think we got right, but <clears throat> there are so many other parts of it. I, if you look, <clears throat> you'll find, here's a, a major fail. You'll find a video on YouTube, uh, like a, a demo launch video of an iPhone app called iReddit. I thought I was very clever when I named it that, um, which was the first mobile app for Reddit in like 2010. I think we launched it, maybe even 2009. It was right around the iPhone's launch. And I was like, holy shit, this is going to change everything. Like we need an app immediately because people are going to want to read this thing all the time. Like whether they're waiting in line or at the bathroom, like they're going to be on this app. And this was just, this is going back to my naivete as a CEO. Like uh, this was a project that I ended up outsourcing to some freelance developers who did a great job with it. Mm -hmm. um, we shipped it and, but I never made it, <clears throat> I never made it a priority. And I never realized as a leader, the responsibility that I had, not just to make it a priority within the org, but also get the buy-in within the organization to really like, it was a radical, it seems absurd right now, but like 2009, 2010, it was a radical thing to say, hey, mobile is going to be a big deal. We need to shift our resources and our focus over there away from desktop, even though it's been really good to us. And, you know, little did I know at the same time, Zuck, did something similar at Facebook, but he, he actually did it right. Cause he said, don't show me anything that's not mocked up for a mobile view. That's not for a mobile app. Right. That's, that's actually how I should have led in that situation. And, um, you know, the end result is Reddit didn't actually ship a native mobile app until after I came back in 2015. So, you know, for five, six years, there was no app called Reddit. There was no Reddit app on the app store. Uh, and so how many millions of people never got exposed? How many, right? There's just, uh, it's, it's all of these things that, um, <clears throat> you know, I can Monday morning quarterback for myself and, and, and now at least get to give advice and work with founders at 776, my VC firm, um, give advice to them thanks to those scars and those lessons learned. And I mean, but that's, but you're right at a high level when it gets written about in the books or talked about in the interviews, 
it's uh, this, the founder journey is always just very straightforward and like, yeah, maybe there's that one moment of fear, but everything worked out in the end and it was great. Yeah. And that is far from the truth. It's yeah. lots of missteps and mistakes. Do you think, uh, was there somebody telling you before 2015, like, Hey, you, you need this mobile app, whether it was your customer, whether it's the community itself, whether it was somebody else in the business, was it kind of like a failure to hear that? Or just like, just in the sea of priorities that one gets kind of swept away in? Uh, Well, okay. Look, part of it, frankly, right. So I, I left in 2010 Mm-hmm. back until late 2014 during that time reddit was acquired it was a part of Condé Nast. like the team that was there was pretty sort of starved for lots of things so they just didn't have the resources and but frankly if you would ask the average user back then they would have said desktop is fine mm-hmm. because the user base really skewed heavily towards like sitting the, the kind of folks who sat at their computer all day for work anyway they didn't you know they were not really inspired by the idea that, you know, you should want to uh, be able to check it from your phone. And so actually that was a a very strong instance where I think the user base didn't know what it wanted or it knew what it wanted, but it didn't know what the business needed in order to grow. It didn't know what the rest of the user base could be if it expanded, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, and that kind of myopic worldview is, is tricky because it doesn't just on a normal, on a, on a regular business, it holds back the business and product potential on a community-driven business, it holds back the product, the business, and the community potential, mm-hmm. right? Because you're now limiting the audience of people who sort of, quote-unquote, belong here. Mm-hmm. And when you're constricting the audience of people who belong here to people who are at their computers all day long, uh, you know, you're going to skew uh, certain ways. And so I think, and I said this jokingly, but it's true, in 2015, so I'm back Let's see, I'd come back as executive chairman <clears throat> and been very busy um, <clears throat> sort of rebuilding things. And, um, but I had, and I had the privilege to work with some amazing people who, who really did all the work. But uh, one of those amazing people forced me to go out of the country. <clears throat> Maybe she was just sick of me being around. And she said, look, you've been working this thing for like six months straight. Like you need to take a couple of days <clears throat> and sent me to a speaking gig in Rome that I knew wasn't worth it. <clears throat> it was like, it was this media conference, but the advertisers who were there were not in any way. They were so top, they were blue chip advertisers. There's no way they were going to advertise on Reddit in 2015. But I said, look, I'll go anyway. Cause it's, it's Rome and it'll be, you know, two days and I'll have a wonderful time. And that's where I met my wife and, or my now wife, cause I was trying to get breakfast one morning and I'll tell you where it applies. So, I mean, you could, I've told the story before about us meeting, but the, the relevant part here is we start talking and she's like, wait, so what, what was the name of this, your startup? What's the name of your company? And I tell her and she opens her phone. She goes to the app store like any normal person does and searches for the app. No results. And she looks at me and she's like, wait, how do you spell it? And I'm like, R-E-D. I was like, don't even bother looking like it's an issue. We're going to ship this app. I swear. And I'm like, emailing the team back home like please we need to ship the mobile app like <laughs> you're really you're really letting me down right now i need to i need to figure this out um <clears throat> but the reality is like all of i think all of the decisions that a founder or a ceo needs to make need to go through this lens of 
you know, multiple stakeholders, right? There are users who you need to hear and, and sort of synthesize what they're saying to understand what they're really feeling, not necessarily what they're telling you. Because like that example, they don't necessarily know what they, they want or what the bigger community wants. Um, you've obviously got to take into consideration the folks in your team who are actually going to be doing the hard work to deliver this stuff and who all have their own prioritization and their own goals and ambitions. And, and then the sort of outside, I like to think of this other pillar as the, the sort of wild card, which is the, the stakeholders who, who actually don't have anything at stake. <laughs> and <clears throat> so these are often peers in the industry or not, but, but folks who maybe have some context because they are in, like, let's say they're business leaders in one form or another, or maybe they don't even have to be. Um, but, but I like to keep on my sort of personal board, um, people who just don't give a fuck about tech, um, who just don't care at all about the latest industry news because I, it's <laughs> so helpful. I mean, it's humbling because you also remember like, right, this is not the most important thing in the world, but it also helps to give another sort of foundation in that stool of, it's like that extra pillar, that extra leg mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> of perspective. And, and I think certainly in my role now as an investor, I think one of the reasons I get to see the things that I'm lucky enough to get to see as early as I get to see them is because I have that extra dose that comes in that's totally unfettered, that just is so naive to all the kind of internal BS trends of the tech industry. And it's a great thing because they're coming at it from a perspective, right? That that is just just wonderful and free of any bias. Uh, and uh, And I think that's it's an important thing for leaders, especially as a company starts to grow because politics just inherently gets created. You get further and further from your users. Like for the first three years of the company, I responded to every feedback email. Like if you got an email back from the contact at email, you got it from me. And like for as far as a random user knew, they, they were just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Because they assumed it was like a thousand person company. And like, what is this founder CEO doing responding? But it's like... No, there's just no one else here. It's just like, there's just a couple of us. So, um, and I think um, you want that, you, you, you want those opportunities to dip back in um, because if you don't, I, I think you start, you start slipping. Uh, and, and in this industry and in tech, God, it's, it's wonderful, but innovation comes so quick. And, and that means... Um, you know, every day it's, it's 10 others upstart, uh, 10 others that are behind you trying to drink your milkshake, uh, that you got to stay ahead of. Yeah. I think, um, well, great to hear you were the one behind all of those responses. I think, you know, for us, we like to make tools, so it's not necessary that the founder be the one responding all the time, but, but it's so important to kind of be right there in those direct channels, I think, because, you know, as a, as a startup grows, you know, you build the team and, and just more filters come into play, you know, not, not, you know, with any malice towards it, but folks start thinking, you know, this is the information that somebody needs to hear or not. This is the voice we want to listen to or not. And uh, that sort of unfettered, uh, access to, to feedback, to hearing directly, you know, what it is that the customers are saying to you, what the users are saying, um, 
you know, we, we love hopping in the ticket queue with Zendesk because like that's, that's where there's so much reality, uh, the good and, and the bad of how your user experience is going. And Kristen, here's the thing, right? <clears throat> I say that I did that for three years, not as something to be emulated, right? That, that's <laughs> yeah. I can hire people. Like that was because I didn't know how to build an org at 21. Mm-hmm. So I still recommend founders, I mean, absolutely dip back in and have a, have a role there. But, but at least for the first N months until you've found product market fit, you have no excuse. You got to be doing it. But it's funny because like, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> you, I think, okay, I learned a lot from having retail jobs in high school. I was a Pizza Hut waiter. I was a CompUSA sales rep. Um, I worked in a parking garage at the booth, like taking your ticket. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're the folks who work in retail are a special kind of patient when dealing with, you know, that 1% of customer who's just such a jackass and insufferable and like your tip is depending on it. So you have to kind of deal with it. Anyway, it's, but it's interesting on email, there is a weird kind of crazy that comes about on email, which I never saw working in retail. I never saw working in food service because it's someone who's just sitting in a keyboard, who's just like going at it and cares so much. That's the thing I try to console uh, folks on now is like, if they care enough to write, you know, 5,000 words in all caps, like it's (laughs) like, you at least know that you've made something that people care enough about to spend all that time being angry at. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there is a silver lining even to those tirades, you know? And, and I think, yes, yeah, certainly software plays a really important role in triaging them. So thanks, Zendesk. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough pill to swallow when it's like your baby and it's your business and someone is like that irrationally mad at something. I mean, I, like, it's wild. It's it's really something else. Many of those people in in our own forms became early uh, early engineering hires, early product yeah. hires. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if 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 the if the feedback is on point, you know, like let's let's cool. let's bring them in to help us fix this. Yeah, right? on yeah. the I feel it. Yeah. yeah, that 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 one's for you, Jake. Hopefully, you're out there listening. We we know who you are. Um, and yeah, so let, let's talk a little bit more about about seven seven six. You know, I, I think it's obviously exciting to you. I think it's exciting to the market too to see you in as an investor building this, building building a, a firm that has a real focus around uh, bringing in operators and helping founders uh, kind of work through some of those operational issues early on. Um, what what's the motivation there? Um, I'm sure you know some of your own experience building a company, but um, would just love to hear more about like why and how you came up with the operator and residence concept. Well, I was thinking about this from first principles. You know, why do venture firms want operating partners? And I've hired many over the years, but I never took a moment to really think like, all right, let's just understand why and. At the end of the day, you pull someone away from an operating role where, you know, they've developed some amount of expertise, five, seven, who knows, 10 years. They are really good at operating. And for so many founders today, you know, they have 
great founders have infinite sources of capital coming at them. It is very competitive for VCs trying to win deals. And so one of the ways that VCs will do that is to say, hey, look, founder, you've got a great company. I want you to meet. We've got these wonderful operating partners. They know best practices uh, to be able to help you. So if you've got some issue two in the morning, servers on fire, I need some help scaling, like best case scenario, the VC's actually been an operator before, which is rare. But even still, like I haven't operated in a few years now. And the problem with these operating partners by design is that after about a year of doing the job, they're now investors. So they've actually lost the thing that makes them like the sort of valuable part. Yeah. You became the advisor investor, not the operator anymore. Right. Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, well, how do we build a system that actually aligns everyone involved so that we have this constantly refreshed pool of operators? And that's how the operating residence program came to be. And and I'm lucky, you know, Caitlin was one of the amazing people who took a chance on Reddit back in like 2015. And she was our VP of people and culture. She built this entire program to say, okay, let's do open applications, something no one in venture does. Um, And let's be really intentional with how we create those applications so we can get as broad a candidate pool as possible. Also something no one in venture does. Although it has changed now, actually, since we've done that and since we've open sourced it now, I've seen many firms and I love it. I want, I want to hope every firm starts doing it. Um, And we got 1100 applicants. I think about 81, 82% consider themselves underrepresented in venture, which is easy because as long as you're not a white dude, you're underrepresented in venture, but still. Most of us, most of us, yeah. (laughs) Reality of venture. Mm-hmm. And what's exciting is we got amazing, amazing candidates and, you know, they're going to be working with us for a year, supporting our companies, seeing everything that goes on here under the hood. Um, also, we'll be helping to build their brands as they're creating content from the work they do with these companies. And then our job at the end of the year, by the end of the year is to then place them at, you know, other top venture firms as a sort of way to like sort of hijack the traditional apprentice model that happens where it's like people come in from consulting as associates and do grunt work for a number of years, but founders don't want to meet with an associate who doesn't have any startup experience. So like, we think this could be a way to kind of hijack getting great talent or a way to sort of circumvent, let's say the traditional, uh, very hierarchical or apprentice like model VC and say, look, we have some super talented operators who've had a front row seat to doing this job they should work at your firm. We, we know the heads are recruiting in a number of, of top venture firms and we'll see how it goes. Uh, but the plan is to get those three in our current program placed and then run another class and have these recurring cohorts every year, similar to like Y Combinator, mm-hmm. except for operators turned, uh, hopefully investors. And maybe some of these operating partners will go back. Maybe they'll go work at one of our startups because they just love it so much. Or maybe they'll decide to go back into operating full time, or maybe they'll start their own rolling fund uh, and become a solo GP investor. Who knows? But it's an experiment we're taking and I'm just grateful to have someone like Caitlin building it and, and running it as well as she is. That's awesome. Another another kind of community, right? That that need needs investment from the outside, needs to get kind of a, a new user type involved. Yeah. Um, I love it. I, I love it. Um, I know we're running a little short, uh, on, on time. Um, maybe, you know, one really practical thing, uh, for, for the folks who, who are with us today, you know, uh, I know a lot of them would be wondering, you know, how do you evaluate the customer experience of potential investments? Uh, how do you talk to founders about what they're creating from that standpoint? Yeah. Well, well, I love, 
asking, one question I'll ask founders is to just describe, just sort of riff a customer journey. Mm -hmm. Give me Jane Doe's story of using your app and why she cares about it, why she's opening that up that morning instead of the 10 others or what. I mean, it depends on the product, obviously, but I look for a certain amount of empathy in founders. I mean, we invest when it's in some cases, literally just a deck or not even a deck, right? We will invest that early. And so you've got to rely heavily on founders and their ability to really convey that amount of empathy and be compelling. And, and, you know, if you, if you walk away from that conversation feeling like, okay, this is a founder, often it's the CEO, but at least one of the founders has to have it. That is just obsessed with creating a great product experience and understands who their user is and what they care about. Um, that's, I mean, it's, it's vital and, and ways that they can show it. I mean, it's great right now you have, you don't have any excuse not to at least reach a minimum viable audience, maybe even a minimum viable community if you're really good, because there are so many tools available now Mm -hmm. to build a landing page, to get a mailing list, to open a Slack group to fire up a discord channel, right? To show some signs of like for a hundred people or a thousand people, I've made something people want um, with no code. I mean, I've like, it's, it is inexcusable now, even if you're not a technical founder, like I was a non-technical founder, technically. I mean, I've, I've written code, but a long time ago, not very well. Um, but as a non-technical founder, even you have no excuse because, I mean, we've just seen so many creative hacks. I've had, we've, we've invested in companies where the founders, sort of a minimum viable community actually was uh, WhatsApp was overpowered over WhatsApp, right? They acquired users via email and a sign up. Um, actually got paying customers just hacking with Venmo. Like you, you have no excuse. And, and it's an interesting litmus test. Because if you can't do that, you're probably not cut out to be a founder. Like if you just if you don't have enough moxie or grit to figure that out and go through with it, like being a founder is not for you. Yeah. 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 No, it's, 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 it's a, it's a great point, right? Like for, for kind of all of these stages where the, where the barriers have gone away, right? Like you used to have to raise a ton of money because you're going to have servers in a closet and you needed a sysadmin, like, you know, this is not the world. First Reddit servers were, were there, assembled them. We got, we ordered them off new egg. We assembled them at our house. We took them to a colo facility. It was before AWS, like no excuse now. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a great point. Like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to build this place. There are places that already exist and and just getting in there, trying, doing, talking is, you know, oftentimes starting is, is the hardest part. Um, especially if you're, you're more product centered founder rather than maybe a customer centered founder. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, well, that's fantastic. I, I have one closing question that, that we, we ask um, uh, all of our guests, uh, being who we are. Uh, if you, uh, Alexis, need help from a company and reach out to customer service, how do you prefer to get in touch with somebody? Do you call them? Do you WhatsApp them? Um, yeah. wait, so if I'm on public board, wait, if I'm, which one, which way is this going? If I'm the one who wants if help, you're the one who needs some help. Yeah. Oh, how do I want to get reached out to? Um, oh, you know, it's so subtle, but what makes, okay. I schedule my, so the short answer is probably just real time chat in the browser. Okay. Because I am old. So I don't, I don't like my thumbs are, I have ogre thumbs and I don't really like texting. 
um, if I can avoid it. Like I'd rather use like signal swipe thing, but it doesn't like me like 90% of the time it works, but the 10% it doesn't, I have to delete the word is annoying, but like, I mean, it'll get there. But in the meantime, um, the, the, the important thing for me is like my Monday through Friday. I mean, I'm, I, I literally schedule almost every minute of my work day. And when I'm working, I'm working. And when I'm, when it's dinner time with the family, it's dinner time with the family. And so the weekends are often where I get to catch up on stuff where I get to be Alexis, not like Alexis, the business person. And I get to be like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta reach out to some, I'm doing some customers. I need some customer support issue. Cause like the, the cable at the farm is messed up or I'm missing channel 16. I'm whatever making this thing. And because it's the weekend, when I get the bounce back of like, oh, we'll be open on Monday. Oh man, it's like it's like a dagger in my heart because I just I've been so trained, I've been so spoiled by enough companies now that are like three person startups because I spend my working days trying out all kinds of new websites where I know there's like only three people there, and if I go into the little widget and I immediately get a response. I feel so validated and so supported that when it's like mega corp and it's the weekend, we only have weekend. We have um, hours starting on Monday. I'm just like, you all don't care. Like you're a Mm -hmm. fortune 500 company and you just don't care. And this little startup with three people gives so many more dams than you. And I mean, I realize there's, there's more layers to it, but here's the difference though. The companies that are born of this social a social media age. So if they've started in the last 10 years, that's, this is table stakes. Like they're going to eventually get to the size of, you know, fortune 500 company and it, and they're going to bring that culture of sort of real time support with them. But for the incumbents culturally, I think it's a hard thing for a lot of them to shift. And, uh, it has to though, because we're as consumers, like we're just so spoiled yeah. and, but that's okay. I mean, I like, I think, I think investing in things like customer service and support are going to be table stakes. Like they shouldn't be the exception. They should be the rule. And there are enough companies that are winning in big ways doing that, that it sets the bar for everyone else. And it's either you're on that level, you're subpar and you're going to have a bad time. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, demystifying you know some of some of what it is to be an entrepreneur uh sharing uh your experience uh talking to customers building community um it's really great to have you alexis and hopefully we can do this again some other time and i hope for anyone watching if you didn't um if you want to ask me a question hit me up on twitter happy to ask me anything i'll uh, i'll respond to you in the replies Wow, that was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Alexis, for being part of our show. You really gave us a lot to think about when it comes to the culture of hero worship and finding one's own story. And thank you, Waffle House. You transformed a young, hopeful lawyer into such an inspirational entrepreneur. Waffles over LSAT says it all. If you like the podcast, help us grow. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. Stay safe. And hungry. Hungry.